Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from all Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. 25-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host all the way from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It is Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. It's spring. It finally, after you know, a million yeah. months later. But yeah, it's here. Yep. Uh, the snow has finally melted, finished melting a couple of days ago, and then this beautiful, beautiful South Dakota wind just came and blew everything dry. Yeah, that, that outdoor uh, automation system just doesn't seem to work as well as the indoor one does. Love it. Gets a little Love too it. hot and a little too cold. You want to <laughs> tackle some feedback? Why not? Our first email comes in from Matt. Matt writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I started using Mini Diary a few years ago after Noah recommended it on the show, but I see it's no longer maintained. Do you have any recommendations for an encrypted journal app to use as a replacement that could also sync across multiple devices? Thanks for making a great show each week, Matt. So it's kind of funny. I had switched from Mini Diary over to a different app called EncryptPad. For the purpose, really, it wasn't because they were, uh, it wasn't because uh, I saw that Mini Diary was no longer maintained. It was really because I wanted dark mode. And Mini Diary has like this, uh, it has the, you know, journaling I guess, table of content style thing. And I really just want to just play notes. So I want a simpler UI. So I'd switch to EncryptPad and I thought, oh, that's great. I'll recommend EncryptPad. And I went to EncryptPad. Yeah, the last time they made an update was in 2022. So that may also be un- unmaintained. So in general, I would tell you that your options are, if you're starting at the top, you might stop start with something like Joplin. Joplin is a open source note app that will do all of the things in the way of creating notebooks and you can create notes and all the rest of it. It does support encryption. However, comma, the encryption appears to not be local. It appears to be for their synchronization. So they support a number of different synchronizations. They have their own sync thing. You can use uh, Dropbox. You can use OwnCloud. You can use WebDAV. Uh, so they support a number of different sync options to include ones that are open source and that's where the encryption plays in but if it doesn't appear anyway that the notes are encrypted on your local device so i would be aware of that just going into it a second option which i like slightly less than joplin is standard notes standard notes is the answer you would get if you went into likely many of the chat rooms or on reddit it's technically open source it does do uh, client-side local encryption what i don't like about standard notes and haven't from the day that i tried it it has this weird cloud-like dependence that isn't really, th- I don't really know how to explain it. But so, for example, you can pay for a, a $90 a year and you can get their productivity plan or you can pay $120 and get their professional plan. But at least the last time that I used it, they weird things like themes were something that you had to pay extra for. I'm sorry, I'm not going to pay you $90 a year so that I can turn on dark theme. I will absolutely pay you $90 a year because I like the product that you're providing to me. 
and it provides tremendous value to my life, and I want to support you developing. That I'll pay $90 a year. I'll pay $120. I'll pay $500 a year all day long. But the idea that, that themes are a premium feature is just a little weird to me. And the other thing that I don't like about it is it is all like they do all of the hosting. Like You can use it client side or you could just shut off the, you know, the, the syncing. But I just I don't it, it, just, it just feels too tied to a service to me for, for me to really recommend it with all sincerity. So I've used it. I think my wife is still using it as kind of her go to. She can download a thing. Again, it's real popular with journalists. It does support encryption, seems to stand up. And obviously they're available in. The source code is available, so all the things that I'm, I'm complaining about, about the free app that I downloaded, you could technically go fix if you were so inclined to. Um, so you can check them out at standardnotes.com. Joplin, you'll find it at joplinapp.org. In CritPad, I'll have a link for you to their GitHub page in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. But here's something else you might consider. You might consider foregoing or separating into separate categories the technological solution of providing the encryption and the technological solution of a journal app. And so, Steve, this is where I'm going to look to you. You do a decent amount of encryption, but you, as you would describe it, the old curmudgeon way, can you talk a little bit about why you do it that way, what it is, and what some of the benefits are to keeping it simple? So I use GPG, and it's largely because I'm just an old salty guy. Like, this thing worked for me, and it's relatively safe. I'm sure there are flaws, and you can crack it and all the rest of that if given enough time. But at the same time, where someone's going to take that that amount of effort to get at um, what's in here is is pretty inconsequential to me. So essentially, all that I do is I I GPG a tarball, uh, a gun zipped tarball, and I push it up to Nextcloud so it can sit there encrypted, and I sync it around and stuff like that. And when I want it, I pull it out. I pull out my key, which is not everywhere because that would be bad. Um, <laughs> And, you know, there's a password on on the decryption key. And then I just dump it back to the tarball, untar it, do my business, tar it back up, and it sinks away. So largely, it's one of those things like you could do it in some sort of automated fashion, I'm sure. It's just it's not worth it to me. Like the steps to encrypt and decrypt are so minimal that I would rather do this by hand and walk through the process than have my automation accidentally fail or, you know, just some other, some other process, because honestly, part of it is it keeps you sharp. Not, not that GPG is hard. I don't want to give you the wrong impression, but one of the things that I preach in my job is that automation is good. Too much automation is bad because you end up losing the ability to cope with problems or understanding how the underlying technology works. If you've automated it all the way and I apply that to things like encryption and stuff like that. And so I know there are people out there that think I'm off my rocker, but I maintain this as a as a IT professional. I've been in so many places where it's like, well, what's that automation do? Well, we don't know. And Bob left, so we just left it alone. <laughs> like, we leave it alone. Don't touch it. You Magic know? scripts. Uh, exactly. My, that, that, right? is, that is a fireable offense at Alta Speed. So, yeah, the old curmudgeon in me is like, I started doing this in 2004, and I just kept that habit all the way through. So one of the downsides to doing it this way, right, is you're having to decrypt and re-encrypt every time you want to make a change, right? So if you did this, it would it would work. It would stay secure, all the things. But you're essentially rolling your notes into an encrypted container and you're pulling them back out every time you're wanting to make a change, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I could use the GUI method where you're using the archive roller um, and something like, um, what's the, is it Seahorse? That That's the GUI application that gives you the ability to insert a key and then decrypt a file like in the UI. So you could absolutely do that just like you do with a tarball, right? Like the, in a, in anything like Dolphin or Nautilus or whatever, if you double click on a tarball, it'll show you the files and then you could double click to open the file and it will create some sort of temporary file. When you save and close it, it puts it back into the tarball and then it, you know, the tarball closes and you're done. You could absolutely do it that way. I just don't. How about using Lux? Could you could you see building like a Lux container or having a, you know, like creating essentially an image file and creating a Lux file system on top of that and then mounting that when you're trying to work inside of your encrypted, as we would put it this way, I suppose, little encrypted file system? Yeah, you absolutely can do that. Um, I don't have any particular feelings about that one way or the other. It wasn't something that occurred to me back in the day and I carried it forward. I will say one of the things that my friend does is he actually uses, I can't remember what it is, but it essentially creates a hidden encrypted section in your home directory. And he actually stores a VM in there. And then the VM has a password and then he's got the encryption inside the VM on uh, on a drive inside of the VM. So wow. like he takes it, yeah, he takes it much further than I do. Um, so is is that uh, is that like a Veracrypt thing or is that like a KDE Vaults type of a thing? I can't remember. It it it's more generic than KDE Vaults. There, someone out there in the audience, I hundred percent will write in and tell me what it's called because it's been around for a long time. Um, well, so and it was some utility you can find in Ubuntu from way back in the day where you were just able to apt install whatever it was, and it creates. I think what it does is creates like a sparse file and then, um, you know encrypts the sparse file and hides it. I think that's what is happening in the background. So with vaults, it you can do cryfs, I think incfs and go cryptfs, I think are the three options. And so they're they're generic things, they're just kind of rolled into a nice little utility. But yeah, it would be interesting if if somebody does write in live at asknoshow.com, I'd be interested in in different ways to do this, the more ways. And really, if you think about it, if you look at what Snowden did, right, he didn't rely on just one encryption method. He put everything in, well, at that time it was TrueCrypt, and then inside of like a Lux, uh, the, the drive itself was encrypted and then stored it that way. Um, so you might consider two different versions of encryption and two different steps. That way, if one fails, you've kind of got a backup in there. Our second email comes in from Joey. Joey writes in and says, hey, Noah, USPS in my area, is a joke of the five important things I get each year. They lose half of them, and yet they can get 10 pieces of junk mail and my neighbor's mail into my mailbox every day. So about a year ago, I switched to traveling mailbox, and I've been pleased. The best part is, for whatever reason, USPS knows it's a virtual mailbox and is yet to forward a single piece of junk mail to my traveling mailbox address. So I appreciate you writing in. Um, that's a follow-up to last week's feature segment where we talked about Privacy respecting mail. How do you get U.S. mail to join the 21st century? And so uh, feedback from a service called Traveling Mailbox. Again, they're the ones that have kind of the dedicated app that you can uh, that you can do a lot with. So, hey, Noah. Yes, sir. Um, one of the things that struck me about about this. So I was talking with uh, some neighbors of mine who are in their 50 something and I was just giving them a synopsis of last week's episode. Yeah. And they're like, can like so they're down the road for me and they're like, can we get KNOX down here? And it's like. 
I don't think so. They got a pretty broad reach, but I don't think it's down there. And they asked whether KONX streams online. And I was like, you know what? I actually don't know the answer to that. Yeah, they, we do. KONXradio.com. So I will. The reason it ties in here is because they were, uh, they're not technical people, but they were super interested in the conversation about the safe mailboxes, like the private mailboxes. So sure. I just thought I'd tie that in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, if you, if, for those that are interested, uh, I host Critical Thought every weekday, nine to noon, and we talk about life and life issues and local, uh, local and and current uh, current news issues. Um, so, yeah, and it is absolutely streamed to KNOXRadio.com. dot com. Um, our, but anyway, I appreciate Joey you writing in and for the traveling mailbox. I'm glad that's working. If you have an experience with a privacy respecting mail service, or even if it's not dedicated to privacy and it's just more along the lines of dragging the USPS into the 21st century, I'd be interested to hearing from you at live at asknoahshow.com. Our third email comes in from Vincent. Vincent Wright says, hi, Vincent here. I've been using EOS from Marana on my Exomi Red Eye Note 8 I bought off of Amazon to get into the custom ROMs. It's a nice phone, and after purging the Chinese government spyware, like Android Exorcists, anyway, EOS is Lineage OS with Micro-G app-based tracker blocking and some other neat features. It's advertised as a mobile privacy, easy but not restricting for users that can't live without Facebook or TikTok. Thanks for the great show. Here's a link, and he links to e foundation. So I, I've taken a look at uh, EOS in the past, and I just did a quick refresher for myself just to kind of get myself caught back up. Again, I love that there is a lot of competition in this space. I think I this is this is one of the things that make when, when people had the debate, you know, five years ago or six years ago, and we were talking about, well, where is the greater evil between iOS, Apple or Android? My argument all along has been Apple is the the greater of the two evils. Why? Because with Apple, their software is closed source. In addition to their hardware, only runs their software. So you have either an Apple device or a paperweight. Pick one. With Android, there's a couple of things that work to our advantage. Yes, the open source nature allows different carriers to put undue pressure on the software manufacturer to include a bunch of junk that us end users don't want. However, comma, because we can get administrative access to the device, we can just erase that software and put whatever software we like, kind of like we do have been doing with Linux on laptops and desktops for years. So the that is only possible because Google open sourced the Android operating system. So now people can take the parts that work to include the very important parts of the instructions to talk to the chipsets and build all sorts of stuff off of that one of which is Lineage OS, one of it, which is Graphene OS, and now EOS or E.Foundation. Um, so I've not played with this directly, but I've I've been following it for a little bit. It seems like it's a really cool service. It strikes me as kind of in between Lineage and, and Graphene OS. I would just add to say that you can absolutely take Google Play services out of Lineage OS. It doesn't come with it. And with Graphene OS, you can have... Google services and just sandbox it. So there's, I think it's just different ways to solve the same problem, but definitely would throw some attention to it. And if it's working for you, I think that's absolutely fantastic. If you have questions, write in live at asknoahshow.com. Of course, you can join us live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. We'll take your questions at 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We'll head over to the Linux Newswire newsroom, check in with JT and get the latest on this week's Linux and open source news. 
from the Linux Newswire Newsroom. This is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of April 16th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Deepin 20.9 has been officially released. Firefox 112 has been released. Digicam 8.0 has been released along with the Qt6 port. The LXQT team has announced the release of LXQT 1.3 with Wayland support. Valve has released Proton 8. And FerretDB offers a drop-in replacement for MongoDB. Described by its creators as a truly open-source MongoDB alternative, Ferret has reached its 1.0 production release, with all the essential features capable of running document database workloads. FerretDB 1.0 is a stateless proxy that converts MongoDB protocol queries to SQL, using Postgres as the database engine. FerretDB enables Postgres and other database backends to run MongoDB workloads. Work is ongoing to support SQLite and SAP HANA. Universal Blue is a new Fedora-based distro using OS Tree. Mercedes-Benz has made a four-point press release claiming that the industry needs to sponsor and support open-source development. There's an EU petition to create an open-source AI research institute along the lines of CERN to prevent AI being owned and controlled by a few companies. Databricks has followed up its release of their large language model Dolly with Dolly 2.0 as the world's first open-source instruction following LLM. More than a dozen open-source industry bodies have published an open letter asking the European Commission to reconsider aspects of its proposed Cyber Resilience Act, saying that it will have a chilling effect on open-source software if development is implemented in its current form. In the U.S., the Securing Open-Source Software Act has passed the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee and moves onwards toward the Senate floor. According to the press release from the Department of Homeland Security, this bill would include a risk framework around open-source code. CISA would take the leading role in developing this framework, which would be used across the federal government and organizations and companies operating critical infrastructure. The bill passed the committee with an 11-to-1 vote. Rand Paul gave the dissenting vote, stating that he is concerned that this bill will create federal regulation of open-source software and will kill a thriving area of innovation. Paul has proposed an amendment to the legislation to limit CISA's control to regulate all open-source software. The Linux Foundation has released a schedule for the Embedded Open Source Summit in late June in Prague. SUSE has released a new version of Rancher with a strong focus on security hardening. Google has released an emergency Chrome security update to address a zero-day vulnerability targeted by an exploit that is already in circulation on the Internet that can allow malicious code to be executed. And lastly, security vendor Sonotype has detected 6,933 malicious open-source packages in the month of March alone, bringing the total discovered since 2019 to over 115,000. We talk a lot on this program about using tools and how they can be beneficial, but it's always an interesting perspective to me when somebody comes over from the prior proprietary world and comes over into open source land. So joining me for this segment is Kenny Schmidt, lead installer and service technician at Alta Speed Technologies. Welcome in, sir. Thanks for having me on the show today. It has been a hot minute since you've been in the studio. It has. Thanks for having me back. It's been great. So I want to talk to you a little bit. You, you've, you're, it's not an exaggeration to say your entire adult life, you've worked in some form of production, right? That was one of your first jobs and it progressed. You volunteer at church. You have done a lot in the way of of individual contracting work. Absolutely. And you actually worked for a promotions company for, for a period of time. So you have a lot of professional experience. And coming into that, you come from 
a, a series of proprietary tools. Can you talk a little bit about what your initial uh, impressions were when you started to look at things? You know, you started with, um, was it Adobe Premiere and Corel Draw and some of those. What were your first impressions when you started to come over to Inkscape and Caden Live? And, and what were your initial impressions? Absolutely. So uh, when I first started looking at a lot of these projects, uh, I had low expectations, right, from, because when you think about comparing a product that has um, a very large customer base like Premiere Pro or Corel Draw or Illustrator or any of these um, big market leaders of, of their programs, um, I had low expectations, right, because we're going from uh, a large company that has lots of users, that has lots of money being dumped into it, so therefore uh, availability for a very large um, programming team to develop these tools. Yeah. Um, so initially, my my expectations with this was pretty low. Oh, it's it's a free thing, um, but uh, due to my line of work, I've been moving more over to the Linux side of things, and I've I've really enjoyed the networking uh, tools that come with the Linux things uh, or the the Linux environment. So for me, what it came down to was I'm already using this tool for work. Uh-huh. I may as well at least try what they have for production tools like Caden Live and Inkscape and all of these different tools. And I've been thoroughly impressed as we've moved through and I've got to play with them a little bit more. Yeah. So as you've started to use some of these tools, you've really dug into Caden Live. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess let's start what you're using it for. Can you talk a little bit about what Godstrong Gym is and how you kind of got involved in what you're doing for them and then what that has to do with Caden Live? Absolutely. So Godstrong Gym is a, a, a essentially a men's ministry uh, where a bunch of guys get together each week, uh, multiple times throughout the week and work out together uh, and then and discuss life together and and experience that together as a whole. And part of God's Strong Gym, one of the things we do is just for the fun of it and also for the fact of being able to go back and see progress or see uh, a nitpick technique and, and kind of learn and grow from it is each week we promote uh, or we record promotional videos. So short, we call it their, their Instagram reels is what they are really. So they're 90 second videos that have uh, videos of us being working out uh, and just having fun in the gym, right? And we've we've done some other fun projects like a testimonial video where we had some uh, of the people that go to the gym actually uh, sit down, ask them some questions about why they're at the gym and, and all those different things. And we've then taken that and used open source software like Caden Live to be able to edit these videos to look very professional and high end. So you're eat, living, and breathing open source software now, particularly on the production end. Give me some of the nitty-gritty details in Caden Live. So th- so just a little bit of backstory here. So you have just got done doing like an eight-hour video project that, you know, produced a 90-second end product, <laughs> but it, it was it was a tremendous amount of work. So what are some of the things that you liked about Caden Live? What are some of the – and your comment to me that kind of prompted this whole thing is you're like, I'm never going back. Like, yeah. it, it, it is cemented for me the – you know, the, the, the efficacy of open source software. Can you talk about what your experience was like during these, some of these larger projects and what some of the features that maybe people that use for just kind of lean, mean cutting machine wouldn't recognize or pull out of Caden Live? Absolutely. It's, it's been incredible to see uh, the development that Caden Live has had uh, over the last couple of years and how good some of these uh, free and open source softwares have become. Um, specifically, as I was going through and showing Noah uh, today, some of the different things that I'd used in this project, um, it's, it's truly incredible. So I have a, a short little bullet list of some of the features that I absolutely love that make editing projects like that, where you have an eight hours of work to do inside yeah. of a video editor, inc- it makes it go so, by so much faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
one of the things is, especially for me, as I was working on this project, I was working off of a laptop that didn't have a dedicated GPU. Okay. So I needed it to be able to render out certain portions of the video without having to sit there and wait for it to render an entire 90-second video out mm. every single time. I just need to watch four or five seconds at a time. How did that transition work? Exactly. So I just want to check a change, basically view a change that I made to the edit, mm-hmm. and I'm okay waiting 30 seconds, but I don't want to wait five, 10 minutes for a video every rendered time. every single time I want to watch the video back. Um, so one of the things that Caden Live has added is render previews. So okay. you set an in and an out point. So you mm-hmm. basically say, this is where I want my render preview to start, tap and I. this is where I want it to end. Tap yep. Exactly. Tap the Use keyboard shortcuts, very quick and efficient. Um, and then you click the little render button, and it'll renders out that five second clip that you watched and then you can preview it back in live time just that section of the video um so it makes editing on a laptop on the go much more practical it's not something that's like well it's impossible because i don't have a nice enough gpu in my laptop no you can do it on a laptop on the road um which is particularly helpful with me this week i didn't end up having my desktop set up so i was able to work off a laptop so that that was incredible um Next thing up is multicam editing. So multicam editing is the idea of taking, when you record a video, if you want to record the same thing from two different camera angles, it makes editing that incredibly simple. So you take two audio clips and you line the sound waves up. Okay. And a, a, a great way of doing this, best practice is if you have, if you've ever seen in the movies, they have like the little clipboard where you can like, yeah, clap and, goes, and it claps. Yeah. Um, you can do that. As well, believe it or not, with your, just your hands and clapping. I so, can just clap. Yeah, you can just clap. And basically what you're looking for is uh, being able to visually see your hands closed so that way you can see when they actually make mm. contact. And then also the sine wave of the spike in the audio. You okay. line those two sine waves up or you can look and do it by uh, seeing the, the frame as well. And then once you've gotten them lined up, you press play and you just start watching your video. Okay. And as you're watching your video, there's keyboard shortcuts. So you assign each channel basically what a number. So okay. say I have two video clips in my project that I was working on, a side okay. angle and a front on angle. So I press play, I start watching the video and I go. And now do you pull those into the timeline? Correct. You pull those into the timeline and in the actual tool or in the the actual program under the tools tab, uh-huh. there's a multicam tool. So you have to select okay. this tool. And once you select this tool, it'll show a preview of both videos side by side. So by default, you have each video in its own separate track. And the multicam thing says, hey, we're only going to look at one of these at a time, and, and you're going to choose in real time which one we're looking at after the fact. Exactly. So wow. as you're watching it back, you can be making your cuts, basically. Okay. So my process that I, I do as I go along and do this is I bring my, my multicam footage in, I use yeah. my multicam footage, and then I use uh, those shortcuts, so like one and two on the keypad if I have two videos or three or four or five or how many cameras you had recording for that project right okay and then the other keyboard shortcut that i use that is such a saving grace is the guides tool so the guides tool is really simple but also incredibly effective what are guides so guides are little markers that you can put on the timeline with little descriptors so as soon as you press the g key on the keyboard as you're watching that playback yeah it'll leave a little marker on the key and the timeline and it'll you can choose a color for it so you Uh can do color coding if you're like hey for my project, it was an, a testimonial video. So someone would ask a question and the person would answer that question. Um, so what I did when I was going through is I would mark all of the questions and then I would type in because the guides you can actually put labels on as well. So you can give them a title. So um, for this one, it, I did, when did you start coming to God Strong Gym? That was the first guide that I put in. And I would okay. do that for each of the questions that he asked. 
So they're almost like notes inside of your video project. Exactly. That's a, okay. that's a fantastic way of doing it. You can color code them. You can label them. Uh, very flexible and very quick to add. Um, so yeah, the, that those two things in particular, when you're just getting that first rough draft of your edit, mm-hmm. are instrumental to making a quick and, and speedy editing process. Um, past that, we have keyframing. So okay. inside of... Uh, Caden Live, they make keyframing exceptionally easy. So keyframing, if you're not familiar with it, is essentially changing an effect that you've added to a video at different time points throughout the timeline. Okay. So if I want, say, for example, when I have the slide or the the image that says, when did you start coming to God's Strong Gym? If mm-hmm. I want the music to come up while they see that text and then it to come back down when the person starts speaking, uh-huh. that's what you would use keyframes for because I want just that section of the video to have an increase in audio. I see. So in Caden Live, they make keyframing exceptionally easy because what they do is they have a little user interface that sits on top of the clip that uh-huh. you can just make marks on it and then drag them up or down. So those are those little points that you see when you click. It gives you a little Correct. dot and then you can take that peak and pull it down or push it up depending exactly. on exactly yep and okay. then they also do this with your most basic effects so your uh, fade in and fade out for video and okay. your fade in and fade out for audio as well you can grab the any corner of your clip and yes. drag that left or right gosh you know uh, that started for me in sony vegas the esoteric piece of software that like half the world has never heard of but it was great being able to just drag two clips in and then fade them by dragging the little corners and now that stuff is available in Caden live it's fantastic and like you say it works for audio and video absolutely yeah i i can't give high enough praise for Caden live and the work that they've done to put together a product like this so what's your takeaway to somebody who says yeah but kenny you don't understand i have professional this that or the other and, and i'm doing work that I'm getting paid, you know, X amount of dollars for. So I need to have Premiere Pro, Final Cut Pro, whatever the thing, iMovie. The thing that I would tell you is at least give it a shot because I was in that same boat Mm -hmm. when I very first started as a kid and just playing around with software. That's what I started with. I got the student and education plan of Adobe's Mm -hmm. products of their creative cloud. And that was where I started to learn the skills, just general creative skills of getting to edit and all of those different things. And that was how I thought as well. I thought I need I need the professional tool to do this this thing. It's not possible to do it with free internet software. That's that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would tell you is, it is give it a shot. You you'll find yourself very impressed with what Caden Live is capable of. Caden Live is a professional video tool for those who know where <laughs> to look. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and that goes to say with not just Caden Live, but also some of their other um, open source products like Inkscape as well. I okay. have my other. Um, strong suit was doing vector graphic as well mm. as video editing. So I've, I've found a lot of success with Inkscape as well. Very cool. Kenny, I really appreciate the time. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thank you very much for having me. Every once in a while, a piece of legislation comes out that is absolute that absolutely affects us in the open source and really just internet freedom world. And that's the boat we find ourselves in lately with uh, what's known as the Restrict Act. So this, you might have commonly seen it referred to as the TikTok ban bill. But um, Steve and I were having a conversation before the show, and Steve, you made an interesting comment. You said you find it laughable that people refer to it as a TikTok ban bill because it's so broad. How do you even take that away? Yeah, the the other thing that's really interesting is that from what I've read, so I've only read the summations because while I do tend to like to dive in deep, I haven't done so in this one. But from what I've read in the summations, TikTok is not actually mentioned anywhere. 
Instead, we have very broad, broad language in here that, and again, I don't think Noah or I would claim to be any kind of lawyer, but no. you, you, when you read it, you're like, this doesn't seem like it would pass any constitutional challenge ever. Yeah, um, that's largely what the experts are saying. So it, it actually, it starts with something called the Data Act. And this was introduced by Representative McCall, a Republican from Texas who filed the Federal Data Act under uh, H.R. 1153. So this House committee approved it on a party line vote, and the bill essentially requires executive officials to ban U.S. persons from engaging in what they're calling any transaction with somebody who may transfer certain personal data to foreign persons who is the subject of influence in China or to that nation's jurisdiction under intellectual or direct ownership. So I had an opportunity to talk with Senator Kramer, and I asked him a little bit about Intel and how the Chinese go about collecting those things, and he had this to say. Under you know, their laws, to, to Terry's point, that, that they are required to, to spy if they can. And other countries learned this lesson sooner than we did, and chief among them, Australia. There's Australia right in the neighborhood. China's their number one market, obviously. Um, they've risked a lot. They've given up a lot. They've sacrificed a lot to try to correct their own ship and clean their own house, um, particularly when it comes to, to students who were on assignment in their institutions to literally steal intellectual property. And so if the government of China tells them, hey, you are required to turn this information over to us, if it's a Chinese-based company, they have to do that. Additionally, they have targets inside of the U.S. where they're trying to affect a change. And sometimes it comes in the way of overt threats, but other times it's a little bit more insidious. They come after family members. And, and, and Senator Kramer told me that was actually one of the first things he was told when he came into the U.S. Senate. One of the first warnings I got when I became a senator is not a warning I received in the House, but when I came over to the Senate, and particularly on the Senate Armed Services Committee, was to um, be aware and to warn my family for, uh, about um, opportunities that might come their way for employment, for contracts, for business opportunities, uh, for, you know, relationships um, with, uh, with people from China. So as the U.S. government becomes more concerned about this, there is there are attempts now to try to rein in. The problem is, uh, for lack of a better way to say this, the people that are coming up with this stuff don't really understand data privacy, they don't really understand data security, and they're conflating this with a massive First Amendment free speech issue that has the EFF wrapped up from here to kingdom come. And the EFF has pu published two excellent articles. They're ripping good reads, and I would invite you to read them uh, start to finish. I'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. But the, the, the short version is there is the Data Act, which requires executive action to to do something the restrict act is 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 a step further so essentially what it does is it authorizes the executive branch to block transactions and a foreign adversaries that involve information communication and technology and then create an undue or acceptable risk for national security 
for if I was to shorten that up a little bit, the TLDR is it's the Patriot Act on steroids. And so the Restrict Act applies to right now six foreign adversaries, China, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Russia, and Venezuela, but they can be expanded to other countries. And I think what is being hailed as a TikTok ban is much, much more than that. So the CFIUS process is essentially a process that companies in the United States go through to determine if foreign allies or excuse me, foreign entities are a threat to the United States. And they have to approve that that uh, that CFIUS process. They have to pass that. So ByteDance, the American company who owns or excuse me, the Chinese company who owns TikTok, uh, originally called Musical.ly back in 2019, went through the CFIUS process in order to uh, uh, to to verify the purchase. And in response, TikTok committed to a plan that they called Project, Project Texas. And the, the essentially, Project Texas is the company would spend $1.5 billion on systems overseen by CFIUS to block the flow of data from TikTok to ByteDance, thereby eliminating China's ability to ascertain that data. So questions have come up around the efficacy of can they do that? If, if this company is willing to abide by this plan, does that actually stop the flow of data to Chinese officials? And you've watched a slow erosion of this over time. First, they started banning TikTok on government-owned devices. Then they came after schools. And I was, I was, I was talking to uh, our news director, and I was like, can you help me wrap my head around this? So colleges all over the country ban TikTok and don't want it on their state campus network. Okay, fine, got it, China bad, whatever. So they do that, and then their very next reaction is, well, hold on a second. We need a marketing budget to get onto TikTok. Well, I thought you just said we were trying to get off of TikTok. Well, yeah, we are, but that's where all the students are, and they just shut their Wi-Fi off, and they roll over to cellular data, and then they're back on TikTok. So now we have to get on TikTok so we can market to the people that we took off the university's network to get them off of the thing that we said was bad. It's so backwards. The people making these decisions don't understand what they're doing. And for the life of me, having read over both of these acts numerous times, I fail to understand how this is going to achieve the desired effect. Now, Reason.com has a really interesting write-up on this. Their take on this, and granted, they're stretching a little bit here, but their take on this is if you read broadly enough, you could interpret the Restrict Act to say that If you're an American citizen, so everybody has probably done this, right? If you've traveled to another country, you go to watch Netflix or something like that, and, oh, this isn't available in your country. What do you do? You sign up for private internet access. You log into a California server or a Denver server or wherever, and you connect, and then you carry on watching uh, your, 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 your streaming service. And I've seen people do that in other countries who want access to stuff. Here's the, the thing that kills me. Up until five minutes ago, the country to remote into because we had maximum absence of coercion and all the freedom under the sun was the United States of America. And now we're changing that paradigm to be you could interpret the Restrict Act to say if you're using a VPN to bypass this, well, is that you using a communication system to uh, to create undue or unacceptable risk to the United States? Maybe. Who's to say, right? Who gets to be the arbiter of that? And so the reason has this really excellent write-up that basically ascertains that uh, this 
this legislation would direct the president to use the International Emergency Economic Power Act to block or prohibit all transactions and to prevent commercial operations of TikTok and their parent company ByteDance in the U.S. Additionally, the Secretary of Commerce could use their broad power uh, and in their in in the bill's words, identify, deter, disrupt, prevent or prohibit, investigate or otherwise mitigate any risk for any covered transaction or person with respect to any property that the secretary deter, uh, determines to pose an undue, unacceptable risk. So what does that so if somebody just decides, hey, that VPN service poses an undue, accept, unacceptable risk, does that mean that you're just not allowed to use a VPN to connect outside of what the government blesses as OK? The other thing that is highly concerning to me about this, other companies are jumping on the bandwagon to eliminate a competitor because the reality is large companies like Google and large companies like Meta or Facebook, they're not really all that concerned about government regulation because they can pay off politicians. You know what they're really concerned about? The next guy that wants to start Facebook, the next guy that wants to start whatever Google's current implementation of Whatever it was that would YouTube, I suppose, YouTube shorts. So these companies have started to jump on this bandwagon meta paying a consulting firm to orchestrate a nationwide campaign to turn the public against TikTok. And so we're trying to raise awareness about this and and draw some attention to the fact that this is a terrible idea. This is the kind of thing that I would encourage you to call if you live inside of the United States, call your representatives, call your senators, email them, reach out with a contact form and say this is not okay. I agree with the idea of keeping Americans data safe. I agree with keeping all users data safe. I agree with the idea of keeping things private and out of the hands of companies. I agree with the idea that we shouldn't let totalitarian states use social media to target people. All of those things are good intentions and all of those things are good technological things to do. But these bills don't address almost any of it. It just hands a sweeping new powers to the federal government and doesn't really address the problem. So, Steve, you're kind of a you're you're a pretty freedom respecting guy. You try to, you know, maximum absence of coercion and all the rest of it. What are your thoughts when it comes to the Restrict Act or the Data Act? Do you think that it at least addresses the concerns that people have about their information winding up over in China? Not really. There's all kinds of ways to twist and, and turn and get away with shifting data around and all of the rest of that. Like, And again, I, this is not an anti-Microsoft bias, but if we look at what was happening with, with Microsoft in Ireland back only a couple of years ago, and there was a big brouhaha about who owned the data and where it was, regardless of which country it owned, uh, the data center was in. Do you recall all of this? Do. Uh, so we did that with an American-owned company when we were spatting with Ireland over who remembers what, right? Like at the end of the day was, was some two bit criminal possibly allegedly uh, that had angered somebody. And now we're tussling with a supposed ally over this sort of thing. Um, and so all that to say is if the company who is large enough to store and gather data wants to, they can find a way to wriggle out of this just like ByteDance can. And I'd like to point out that, while I absolutely despise TikTok and everything that it seems to represent, <laughs> uh, I think that the, some of the American firms that are founded have done more harm. I think TikTok is just a bunch of idiots, you know, drooling over their screen. I think that there's a bunch of 
more nefarious stuff at work from Meta and other places where mm. they're actively harvesting and and just being general ne'er dwells with the data that they're gathering. Mm. You know, uh, at least to date, I am not aware of any social experiments that ByteDance is playing by you know changing people's thirty-second uh, shorts around. Whereas we know that Facebook has been doing that. So all that to say is, if you're if the purpose of this is to actually be in the public interest, then, you know, it's one of those things that I advocate for in, in life too. When people say, oh, well, you should give money to the, the Ethiopians or whomever. Mm -hmm. I look at that and say, but we have poor people in our own city. Why am I sending the money out to mm. do that? And so it's the same thing here is like, you want to go clean up somebody else? backyard when you've, you've literally let lit a tire fire in your backyard just completely ignore that like that's not really the best way to handle this we'll start with the american companies when we get them under control then we'll go start going international and, and policing the rest of the world yeah like i mean i i'm not in favor of control period i i don't like it wherever it is but if you are insistent on i need to patrol this for the children as is the the mm -hmm. want for so many people, then like, how about targeting the biggest offenders? You know, the other thing that occurs to me, and it was in response to something else, it was in response to the, the leaked documents, uh, the leaked Pentagon documents from, from Jack to Sarah. But Elon Musk had a, an interesting quote. And basically people were asking him like, well, are you going to clean up the internet? Are you going to clean up Twitter to make sure to get all of this, all these documents off there because people are leaking it and this is problematic and are you going to do your part? And his answer was basically, he came back and said, listen, that just isn't how the internet works. Like, I wish it were, but the reality is you you don't get to go clean stuff off the internet and delete it because all that does is draw more attention to the thing that you were trying to hide in the first place. And it's 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 a very down-to-earth, realistic take on how this stuff actually plays out in practice. And so when I start looking at, okay, if we set our objective at we want Americans to be less on TikTok or we want the world to be less on TikTok because China controls it and we think that's bad, okay, fine. So how would we effectively go about doing that? We would have to convince people to make different choices. And trying to ban something or trying to prevent somebody from accessing something on the internet has literally never worked ever. And oh, by the way, that is largely the kinds of things that China is doing that we're upset with them in the first place, right? So to me, the answer to a free speech problem is more free speech. If you think there's a problem with this platform over here, go demonstrate to me why Mastodon is a superior platform and doesn't come with the human rights violations that that you're telling me TikTok does, and then people will just make their of their own volition and of their own accord will just move over. But until you can do that, the vast majority of people are going to be like, oh, man, that's blocked here now. I have to use and then whatever tool it is to get back on the platform. So, yes, you'll I mean, I'm sure there'll be a, a certain range of the sheeple that will pull their phone out of their pocket and they're, they, they tap on the icon they tap on and it doesn't work anymore. And they go, shucks, I'm out of luck. But the people that really want to be on that platform are going to be on that platform and it won't be. And, and if you think that that information isn't being harvested by other countries because they're posting it on Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram or whatever else, you're dead wrong. That information is all over the place and it's being scraped up and hoovered up by no, numerous governments, not just China. 
I think that this is if I was going to give an everyday analogy and you're you're you campaign because we don't want people to pee in the pool. And then mm-hmm. you make a rule about all of the buildings that people can go in uh, as a way to make a broad sweeping thing. It's like, well, no, if your your goal is to stop people from peeing in the pool, then ban urination in the pool. Mm-hmm. Don't stop people from going in places like if 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 your stated goal is this. Here's the thing. We know, okay, let's assume this wasn't controversial. Okay. okay. Let's assume that this this thing is legitimate society good. What we know is every time that the government makes broad sweeping regulation, it doesn't matter which government it is, if there's any kind of legal structure there, they'll find a way to drive a truck through that, right? If, mm-hmm. if, the, if you are not precise enough in your dealings, there's going to be one court or another which is going to rule that, you know, the interpretation of this law is too broad and therefore, you know, whatever, we're going to allow this guy with all the money to get off from this charge. So you, you, if you're going, like, if this is for the public good, then, you know, you don't need all kinds of flowery language. You would literally just put TikTok is prohibited in United States ISPs. Mm-hmm. End of story. Yeah, you're right. If the problem was even TikTok, and I think the the, the, the larger problem is we don't like it when there's another country that has a, an an app or a platform that a bunch of people are on and we don't have control over it. I think that bothers us really more than anything else. I think we disguise that concern as, oh, well, it's unhealthy for, you know, and I've seen all sorts of stuff. I've seen that I, I saw a report a senator was talking about how he believed China was intentionally using TikTok to amplify stupid things so that it draws Americans into engaging in stupid activities. And his argument for that was there is a equivalent of TikTok in China that is used by the Chinese people and they have like self-help and promotional style things, not stupid, you know, eating Tide Pods and getting out of cars with them dancing around the street, whatever else goes on these days. That was his example is to demonstrate as to why this is so problematic. And and to that, my thought is just if that if that is the concern, you're fighting a losing battle because you're essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to prevent people from doing what they organically want to do or what they're organically attracted to. I just don't see how you can force that by the rule of law, nor do I think it's the government's job to do that. uh, Vibrant uh, Golik in the chat room. Um, says national corporate governments give us your money that you did hard labor for and produce and we'll transfer to ourselves and our central banks our cartels NGOs and international corporations uh, and useless imported populations will never be held accountable for misspending and then he goes on to cite a bunch of examples and I, I I think there's a lot of truth in that. So in any event, this is this is not a good thing. It is absolutely something we need to take a stand and I, I, for the most part we try to focus on the good, awesome things that are happening in the Linux and open source world. But this is one of those deals where we need you to be able to step up and contact your 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 representatives to say this is not the way forward. This is not good. Technological stewards would not do this if the goal is to protect data. We can protect data by using single sided encryption, client side encryption. We can t- protect data by uh, helping people leverage technology to its full potential and understanding the code that's behind there. We can. There was a news story in the Linux Newswire talking about federal uh, frameworks for governing open source software. All of those things are at least potential avenues to 
gaining the ability to leverage control over our data and over the software that we use, but just blanketly handing untold powers to the federal government without any sort of transparency, without any sort of requirements, and frankly, vague words, as Steve so eloquently put it, that you could drive a bus through, this is not how you legitimately address privacy concerns on social media platforms. It's a distraction from real progress, and you need to tell the administration and you need to tell uh, your representatives that this is not the way forward. And so the EFF has a uh, the, it's act.eff.org. I'll have the exact link in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. But it, it's really it's really neat. They have a little applet and you type in your street address and your zip code and you say, find my reps and it will spit out and say, here's how you contact your representative. And they even have um, uh, some uh, some. So they have the contact information and then they have, you know, you can put in like, hey, I am, you know, Mr. So-and-so. And I want to reach out to this person and and it, it has a little wizard and you click next and then it it, it will walk you through, uh, you know, how to contact them and, and what all to do. And so I'd highly encourage you guys to do that uh, and gals to do that. It, it, it is absolutely something that requires our attention. Red Hat Summit is upon us. Red Hat Summit 2023. So Ask Noah Show, Mind Drip Media will be out there. We'll be broadcasting live. Um, we'll get a look at what's happening at uh, at Steve's uh, company of employment and see what they're doing and what the latest things with Red Hat are and what how enterprise is being shaped by Linux in the open source world. I remember years ago when we started, it was a function of it was something exciting to see open source and Linux inside of the business environment. These days, it's kind of like an expectation. People start with, I want an open source and non-locked in solution. Then they kind of work backwards from there. And then uh, the, the request for papers is open for self 2023. So if you're interested in talking with self, it'll be June 9th, 10th and 11th, I believe. I think that's right. And so, um, yeah, the conference will be 9th, 10th, and 11th, but if you send, if you want to give a talk at Self, papers are open, and you're welcome to send in your talks. Uh, again, it's all chosen off of merit. Everything is stripped away. It is just the title and the description, and so it is chosen based on the merit of the talk. But if you'd like to do that, we invite you to send that in. You can learn more at southeastlinuxfest.org. The music in our ears means we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest, you can follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.